Welcome. This is the Way Home Podcast. A podcast built around conversations on church, community, and culture. And now, here's Dan Darling. Well, welcome to the fourth edition of the Way Home Podcast. Very excited about our podcast today. We have a very important conversation with uh, one of my favorite people, Thabiti Anyawale, who's a church planting pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He was previously pastor of First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman. He's a prolific author. He's a council member for the Gospel Coalition and also writes regularly at a, a really great blog called The Front Porch, um, and he has his own blog as well. One of his best books, the one that has really impacted me the most, I think, in, in my evangelism strategy is uh, The Gospel for Muslims, and I'm going to ask him a little bit about that. But mostly, this conversation is going to center around racial reconciliation. In the few months after Garner and Ferguson, the evangelical church is really talking in earnest about what racial reconciliation looks like, uh, how it can be accomplished. Thabiti has a really interesting perspective because he's planning a church in, in uh, the Anacosta area of Washington, D.C., and he's going to talk about some of those unique challenges. So it's a joy to welcome my friend Thabiti Anyawale to our podcast. Well, it's a joy to be with you, brother. Thank you for having me. So I want to get right into our conversation. I, I uh, We'll talk about a few things. First of all, I have to tell you uh, off the bat, of the many books you've written, the one you wrote, The Gospel for Muslims, was really, really helpful for me as a pastor, as someone trying to evangelize uh, Muslims and other folks, and really kind of settled me in the sense of, I think people always think they have to know all this stuff about Islam in order to reach them. And you, your point was essentially love them, get to know them, and, and know the gospel well. So I appreciate Amen. that book. Oh, thank you for that encouragement, brother. I'm glad that was helpful. You know, it it is remarkable that if we know the gospel, then we really know everything we need to know in order to see people say, you know, apologetics and other things are helpful, but uh, it is the good news that, that saves people. And so just want to have confidence uh, in the power of the gospel. So you uh, have recently made a big move, you and your family. Uh, you were pastoring a church in Grand Cayman, I believe, and uh, recently moved um, back to Washington, D.C. area. Most people would say, just in least in terms of weather, they'd want to make the reverse trip. Um, but can you <laughs> share a little bit about what God put on your heart to move you back to D.C.? Well, it was a wonderful eight years in the Cayman Islands with a, a beautiful church family and um, just you know lots of God's grace and kindness to us there. My son was born there. My girls um, were eight and six when we moved there, so they kind of grew up there. So that was that was just a wonderful period of time. And yet, uh, over the last couple of years of our time there, the Lord just really began to burden us to be back in the States uh, in a predominantly African-American context or largely sort of multi-ethnic context in a neighborhood that was in some ways defined by social challenges, poverty, crime, things of that sort, in order to try and plan a healthy church and to really, in that way, uh, wager all our chips on the gospel, that it would make a difference in the lives of individuals and families and communities where churches were healthy and vigorous in evangelism and discipleship. And so the Lord's just given us a, a burden to be back in southeast D.C., uh, in and around a neighborhood called Anacostia, a neighborhood that's about 94% African-American, 
and despite all of the great redevelopment that's gone on in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., has largely been passed over by that. And so it's a neighborhood of, of great people made in God's image with some challenges that we think the gospel uh, will address. Yeah, if you could explain, just talk a little bit about what, what it is about the D.C. area that, you know, again, that drew you back and, and where you just feel God is leading you to work and, and what are some of the, I guess, unique ministry challenges maybe about that particular context, maybe than others? Well, I, you know, D.C., we were in Washington, D.C. before we were in, in the Cayman Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were here for several years. I was working in a policy think tank downtown and then came on staff at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And so over those years, uh, D.C. began to really feel like home to us. And even going back to the mid-'80s, uh, my sister-in-law lived in southeast D.C., the very area that we're attempting to minister in now. And so when we were praying and thinking about coming back to plant a church, really we had our hands open before the Lord and didn't quite know where that would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day, a visitor to the island, a friend of ours, uh, we were sitting and talking about these plans, and he asked me, he said, have you ever thought about Anacostia? And I hadn't at that up until that point, but then just subjectively, I had a great sense that this is where I think the Lord is calling us. Because again, that had been our introduction to introduction to Washington, D.C. back in the 80s, and we knew the neighborhood. Uh, in the 80s and uh, 90s, it was really stricken pretty hard by crack epidemic and crime and things that grew up around that. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to sort of describe the community by all the maladies, by all mm. the problems that are there. It's a community with problems, but we were drawn to the people there. They're made in God's image and made for His glory and made to know Him. And so despite the problems, really, um, which, which again are many, for example, we've had three shootings on our, on our neighborhood block in the, last, in the last three weeks or so, mm. and yet we're not to be daunted by that. Um, nor are we to use those kinds of things to sort of big ourselves up as if we're kind of superheroes swinging in to save the day. Mm-hmm. No, we're we're weak people, ordinary people with an extraordinary Savior and uh, a powerful Savior. And so we want to just come and love people and serve people. And uh, in terms of opportunities, the fields are white, brother. We, we are having w- many wonderful conversations about the gospel and about the Lord on an almost everyday basis. And so... Um, the opportunities are plentiful, uh, and yet what we really want to be about is opening the Word of God to people and seeing them transform. Yeah, it, it seems one of the things that's encouraging about this generation, it seems there's a renewed interest among evangelicals to go into the cities, the urban areas, and and plant churches and, and do contextualized ministry, which is very, very exciting. What, what are some of the, I guess, challenges or... Um, I guess warnings that you might have. I think you hit on something where you know there's there's a tendency for us to want to go in and save the day. Is that a potential, I guess, landmine for people going into the city? I, I think, yeah, I think so. I think there's several things that I, I notice are are uh, temptations in my own heart, and that I think I discern in a lot of our conversation about church planting. Uh, one challenge is precisely that a kind of savior complex. Uh, where we imagine ourselves to be the superheroes of the gospel who are going to go in and radically transform communities and, you know, just take a community for Christ. Well, that's a good godly ambition, but it also gets sort of wrapped around it 
a lot of self and pride and, mm-hmm. and things of that sort. So we really have to be careful that we recognize that only Christ is the Savior and that we are we embrace our, our limited humanity, as it were, going into situations like that. Uh, the second thing is I think we have to be careful that we don't begin to think that our strategies, whatever they are, from mercy ministry to other things, that our, our emphasis is emphasis on strategy is really what produces the result. It's the Spirit of God that produces the result because God is being kind to sinners. And that that keeps us on our knees praying and um, beseeching the Lord to, to show His hand and to bear His arm. You know, there's another temptation, I think, and it goes back to the sort of pride thing and the trendiness of church planting. I'm, I'm so glad for the kind of revival in church planting and the way the gospel goes forward in, in church planting. But it does seem to me that when you talk about the cities in particular, a lot of, and we need churches everywhere, so I want to be clear about that, but a lot of the conversation about planting in cities a lot of that's on the heels of redevelopment in cities and gentrification in cities, so that some of it is really planting in more or less middle-class areas mm-hmm. that have just found the cities now fashionable. But there are areas in cities that are not popular among church planters, that are not being served, that, that honestly I think some people think are, are too hard or too crime-ridden or, or too, you know, fill-in-the-blank. Mm-hmm. And I think a temptation would be to say, well, we're in the city or we're in the metro area, but we haven't really been intentional about going to the sort of harder neighborhoods with the good news. And so that that's a danger, too, amidst a lot of very positive work of the Lord in church planting. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was also I'm very excited that you're going to be one of the featured speakers at our Leadership Summit in March, March 26th and 27th, the, the Gospel and Racial Reconciliation. And um, just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the subject, uh, you know, in light of Ferguson and Garner and and what happened in New York with the police officers. A lot of discussion among evangelicals about this, revealing some, you know, some tensions and fault lines. And uh, I've, I've appreciated your your willingness to be prophetic to the evangelical church on this issue. And I guess my first question is, it seems like... You know, it's highlighted just a lot of the different ways that evangelicals see things. So white evangelicals tend to see things one way and black evangelicals another way. And why is it still like that and in terms of the church leading? what? How do you see this changing? Well, you know, one of the reasons that it's like that, I think, is that we're still more accustomed of thinking of ourselves in our natural ethnic and in our kind of sociological and political categories than we are thinking of ourselves in our theological categories. So if you sort of say, you take a person, a Christian, and you say, let's see how this object rests, where where does he settle? Then all of us, I think, have a tendency to sort of settle back into identities, African-American, white American, Hispanic American, political ideologies, conservative, liberal, progressive, so on. Mm-hmm. We, we settle back into those things. And when there's no controversy, then there's no conflict, right? But the moment you have a controversy like Brown, uh, it exposes how, how much we've been thinking in kind of worldly ways, even mm-hmm. if they're benign worldly ways. And the challenge for us is to press deeper into who Christ is and into the, our identity in Christ 
until it becomes really the air we breathe. And so I think many people think if they only say that we're Christians and our identity is in Christ, that the work is kind of done. But there's a lot of renewing of the mind that has to happen. And there's a lot of inspection of the heart uh, in the light of the scriptures that has to happen if, in fact, we're going to keep pressing into Christ and being conformed to Christ. And that, that pressing and conformity in some ways is going to affirm who we are naturally, affirm some truths about maybe our political perspective, but it's also going to cut against a lot of who we are naturally and cut against our political philosophies and, and, and ideas. And, and that's where I think, you know, when the gospel steps on our toes, that's where I think a lot of us have, have sort of retracted into, even deeper, into our natural sort of enclaves and sort of lobbed out rocks and arrows uh, from those vantage points. And so we're just going to have to buckle down and recognize that our reconciliation has been accomplished in Christ, Ephesians 2. He's made us one new man in himself. And yet we're going to have to discover in deeper depths what it means to be that one new humanity in Christ. I think one of the, one of the things that's revealing is just how much we need to listen to each mm-hmm. other. And so I think there's such a temptation for people to simply just say, well, the gospel's the answer and kind of shut down the conversation, even though we, mm-hmm. we believe the gospel's the answer. But that way of responding almost keeps us from sitting and listening to people who are different than us, who have different experiences. And you, you've written a little bit about how let's not use that phrasing, the gospel's the answer, as kind of you know, a means of shutting down the conversation. Yeah, I think it's a kind of escapism. And and and, and who can argue that? Well, yeah, the gospel is the answer. And we, we almost don't even stop to ask, well, what's the question? We, we right. just kind of, the gospel is the answer. Yeah. And, and when you short-circuit the discussion that way, you actually short-circuit uh, deeper sanctification because our growth is really found in the grind when we sort of rub against each other and have to work our way through conversations and discover in fresher ways how the gospel applies, how the finished work of Jesus Christ applies to particular contexts and and questions. That's where all the growth is. And so when we sort of say, you know, well, it's a sin problem, And not, and don't sort of talk specifically about which sin, you know. <laughs> right. Um, or we say, you know, the gospel is the answer, but but don't really get to the question and and how the gospel answers it. Well, then we we are being cliche and and trite, um, and we're not we're not really allowing, as you have said, uh, the deeper work of the spirit in our sanctification to take place. We've short circuited with a with a reflexive answer that, while true in a general sense, is not yet an applied, an application of the Scripture uh, in a deeper sense. I think it also reveals a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, how much, as you mentioned, we're informed by our cultural biases or, or kind of without realizing who we allow to shape our views on the news. So we, we automatically retreat to our corners. We're getting news from a certain news stream that confirms the biases we already have, really instead of letting the Spirit of God through the Word of God shape us, right? No, I think that's right. So I heard someone say recently, you know, unless we, we bring the Word of God to bear on this, then some of us, our defaults are going to be Fox News. Mm-hmm. Other folks, our default is going to be uh, MSNBC. Right. Uh, we, we are always swimming in the waters of the culture. And the thing about 
culture, and I think Crouch gets this right in his book in Culture Making, the thing about culture is not only do we shape it, but it shapes us. It shapes back. Um, and if we're not careful to be, you know, Romans 12, always renewing our minds and Ephesians 4, being renewed in that, that righteousness that is in Christ, then we'll, we'll have ways in which the culture shapes us that we're not always cognizant of. And we'll sort of, again, our default, our resting position will we'll really be a kind of worldliness if we're not careful. Um, and so we, we need these conversations so that we keep iron sharpening iron and uh, we keep uh, pushing each other, stirring each other up to loving good deeds and pursuing uh, higher things in Christ. If you're talking to a pastor or a church planter or just a leader in a church who, who's resonating with this discussion, who wants to be someone who's working for racial reconciliation and racial justice, but it's like, man, where do I start? You know, how do I get my church? How do I lead my church to do this well? Kind of what, what would you say in terms of, you know, some starting places? Well, start with the scripture, you know, keep preaching God's word, keep preaching the gospel, line upon line, precept upon precept. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and it's the word of God that accomplishes the work of God. Um, so be no less committed to the scripture. Having said that, learn to develop an instinct for applying the scripture to these kinds of issues that, that affect our lives and affect our people. I had the privilege of, of being at the Gospel and Work Conference just a couple of days ago and was asked to talk about the gospel, work, and social justice. And uh, we took a couple passages from the Pauline epistles, 1 Thessalonians and 1 and Timothy, where there's this clear line, this dark line between if we're gospel people, then we're working people. And Paul says, you know, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Is that, it's that plain. It's that simple. And yet, when you ask yourself the question, in our day of mass incarceration, where people, you know, 80%, 70, 80% of persons who are incarcerated today are incarcerated on drug possession charges, not, not because of violent crime or things of that sort. When the prison population has expanded from 1980 at 300,000 people to well over 200, or 2 million people uh, 30 years later, and we now uh, incarcerate five times the number of our adult population than any other developed nation in the world, we, we incarcerate more people than even repressive regimes like China and Iran. Today, there are more African-Americans uh, in prison in the U.S. than was in prison in apartheid South Africa at the height of apartheid. Okay, now, when you sort of look at that problem and recognize that most persons who are incarcerated uh, are not incarcerated for violent crimes, have often, because of three-strikes rules and other things of that sort, basically gotten a raw deal. Uh, didn't mean that they were always innocent, but, but the... the penalties that attach to their crimes and the things that they lose in this system as a consequence of their crime, anything like educational support, mm -hmm. housing support, so on, you begin to ask yourself the question, how do we, if we minister in a context like that, how do we help people obey the, the demands of the gospel in work when there's so many systemic barriers to their working? Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes a gospel issue, it becomes a discipleship issue. So in our preaching, we want to develop an instinct for those kinds of things and, and apply the word um, to those kinds of things. And so reading widely, 
uh, reading on topics that uh, sort of maybe come to your attention because of the news. So you, you see the Garner thing erupt or the Mike Brown thing erupt, and you go, well, I don't know about those particular incidences, but there's a conversation here mm-hmm. about policing and criminal justice. Well, read um, William Stunts, and, and, and a white evangelical Christian wrote a great book called The Collapse of American Criminal Justice. Or read Michelle Alexander, a justice lawyer, her book, The New Jim Crow. Read good literature and engage that literature and have it shape, shape the ministry of the word in terms of application. Uh, the other thing I would say, in addition to preach and develop an instinct for these things, um, just very practically talk to people. You know, ask questions and listen. And so where so much of this sort of meets the road, it's just in personal relationship. You've got police officers in your congregation. Mm. Talk with them. Pray with them. Ask them how they are processing these things. You've got persons in if it's any diversity at all, economically or ethnically, you know, move across those lines, across those barriers, and talk to people not like you and listen and suspend your own opinions enough to add something to them that you get from other people in conversation. So do that one-on-one, do that in small groups. And if the Lord leads you, do that as a whole church. So, you know, as a church plant, we went to see Selma, a great movie. And then we came back and we had about two hours of panel discussion. And we had a, a first panel with older members of the church who lived through segregation. See, this, this is stuff in living memory. And so we heard from the older saints about their experiences and their reflections on the movie. And then we had a panel with church leaders and um, sort of from a, a ministry perspective then sort of spoke into some of these issues. So whatever the Lord gives you opportunity to have conversation, have those conversations and, and pray and trust that he'll, he'll use them in his time. It really seems like one of the main things that a pastor can do, and I, I saw this when I was pastoring, and you've probably seen it in much more depth than your experience as a pastor, is raising an issue like this to the level of being a gospel issue. And so, you know, prioritizing to your congregation that racial reconciliation is not just a kind of a nice thing we wish would happen, but this is an actual gospel issue. Is that kind of a very important piece of this? I think so. I, I think, you know, the, the the language of gospel issue is sometimes a little bit tricky. And people think, they think you mean that this is on par with the gospel, right? Or this is the gospel. Well, of course, that's not what we mean. But what we do mean is if we're serious gospel people, that the text of Scripture drives us to certain conclusions because of the gospel. So, uh, again, racial reconciliation is one of those things. If we read Ephesians 2, 11 through the end of the chapter, and we read verse 14, where Christ has made the two one, he himself has become our peace. And verse 17, he has he has put to death the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, or between ethnic groups. Um, there's no way for us to take that seriously. And at the same time conclude, eh, it's okay that, you know, people don't get along ethnically inside the church. Or to, to sort of go, eh, well, that's kind of their problem, and, and we don't really have to bother ourselves with that. Uh, we can sort of sail above that. No, man, the gospel, in that sense, it's a gospel issue because it's, it's so redefined our identity and called us to this common love and common concern for each other that we can't neglect it 
without, in fact, bringing the gospel itself in disrepute. Sort of like Peter, the Gentiles in Galatians, where Paul has to challenge him for the hypocrisy that was evident in his life. And, and Paul understood very clearly his hypocrisy was, in, in fact, sort of distorting the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, racial reconciliation is one of those issues that lies right on the page of Scripture that flows right out of the accomplished work of Christ, that if we, in fact, try to set it aside and not attend to it, we are distorting the gospel. And worse than that, we are not, as a church, proving our growth or our repentance given the racial sin and the racial history of the church in this country. Well, Thabiti Anyabuile, I really appreciate you uh, joining us here today for the Way Home Podcast. Really appreciate your insights in this conversation. And I want to encourage people, if you have not already, to sign up for our leadership uh, conference March 26th and 27th. Thabiti will be a featured speaker. Come and, and really learn from his insights and his, his leadership. Thank you for joining us today. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you, Dan, for what you guys do, what, what's being done at ERLC and your leadership on these conversations. And uh, I just pray the Lord keeps you faithful and uh, keeps you fiery, brother. If you want more information about uh, Thabiti and his ministry, go to my website, danieldarling.com, and click on the podcast page. We'll have all the information and links there in the show notes. Also, as I mentioned, Thabiti is a featured speaker at the ERLC Leadership Summit, March 26th and 27th here in Nashville. He'll be joined by others such as Tony Evans, our president, Russell Moore, uh, John Perkins, a civil rights hero, Trip Lee, and several others. And uh, I encourage you to make plans to attend that if you're a pastor, if you're a church leader, even if you're just a leader in your community and really want to learn more about this important issue. So go to my website, danieldarling.com, click on the show notes. There'll be a link to the conference page and uh, we have a coupon code for you. It's way home. So way home in all caps, and you'll get 15% off for the leadership summit here in March. But for now, thank you for listening to the way home podcast. You've been listening to the way home podcast for show notes, more information about Dan or the ERLC, please visit danieldarling.com. This episode has been brought to you by the ethics and religious liberty commission of the Southern Baptist convention. Thanks for listening.